This week, drought protectant spray for plants. You could spray those on crops in times of anticipated water stress or at the beginning of a drought and prolong the amount of time they have before there's just a huge impact on yield. And a new steel recipe. So, so as a metallurgist, when we look at materials, we, we think ourselves as kind of like experienced cooks. Plus, we'll take an explosive look at plate tectonics. This is The Nature Podcast for the 5th of February 2015. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. One symptom of climate change is that extreme weather patterns are predicted to increase. This includes droughts, much like the one California is currently experiencing. And as anyone with neglected houseplants will know, droughts are bad news for plants. That includes crops. Plant biologists are trying to develop new strategies for reducing crops' water consumption and protecting the plants when water is scarce. Sean Cutler at the University of California Riverside and his team have managed to hack into a plant's natural drought response mechanism and with a couple of tweaks found a spray-on drought protectant that is theoretically safe for use by farmers. Nature reporter Ewan Calloway gave Sean a call. For a plant to grow, that means it has to take in atmospheric carbon dioxide and using the magic of light and the biochemistry of photosynthesis, it turns that carbon dioxide into sugars, which then they're either stored or they're then used directly to help the plant grow. And so the CO2 that gets inside the leaf gets inside the leaf through small pores on the leaf surface that are called stomata that are formed by a pair of neighboring cells that are called guard cells. It's how plants breathe, right? It's how plants breathe. They're the little tiny mouths on the surface of a leaf that control whether or not carbon dioxide can enter inside the leaf and do what it does. But that comes at the cost of water leaving the leaves. So you lose 100 molecules of water to gain one molecule of carbon, as a general rule of thumb. That right there is an area you'd like to tweak or tune to try and improve the ability of a plant to grow better or accumulate more biomass while consuming less water. So how do you how do you, how do you do that? How do you get a plant to take in the same amount of CO2 while giving up less water? The real trick is that plants are continuously sensing how much water is available to them and they have a chemical signal that essentially coordinates throughout the plant how much growth should occur and how much how open those guard cells should be. And that hormone is called abscisic acid or ABA. So our idea was, well, what if we could take an existing agrochemical that is already known to be safe and is used in current agriculture, and what if we could sort of reprogram the plant to think that that was ABA? And then you could spray those on crops in times of anticipated water stress or at the beginning of a drought and prolong the amount of time they have before there's just a huge impact on yield. What's the chemical that you trick the plants into recognizing? We're limited by the number of chemicals that are currently used in agriculture. Uh, So we couldn't just look at the structure of the protein and say, oh, I bet that molecule would work well. And so what we did was we took the receptor itself and we made several hundred mutations or changes to the part of the protein that recognizes ABA 
we then tested a large panel of existing agrochemicals on those modified receptors. And one of them turned out to work very, very well when we took it to the next steps of development. And that was this compound called mandipropamid. Its trade name is Revis. It's used to control a type of pathogen called umycetes, which cause blight. That class of pathogens caused the great potato famine. So how well does it work? I mean, are, are you able to make a more drought-tolerant plant? In order to make the system work, we have to put the engineered receptor back into a plant so that we can really know for sure if it's working properly or not. And so we put that modified receptor into tomato plants and Arabidopsis, which is the the species that a lot of um, plant research is done on because it, it grows very quickly and has many conveniences for laboratory work. So when we put that modified receptor into those two plants, the data in the paper show that we get a response that is close to indistinguishable from the effects of ABA on the plants. And in Arabidopsis, where we were able to do these experiments more quickly, we could show that it reduced water use in the same way that ABA does, and that it stimulated the ability of the plants to survive water deficit or drought. And those are two things that ABA does itself. So really what we're, we're showing is that we've developed a system for chemically mimicking what ABA does, and the chemical that we're using is something that farmers could conceivably use in the field. So you've got something here with this system that it seems like could be really useful for growers, never mind uh, houseplant owners. I mean, wh- what will it actually take to get a system like this in- into crops? It would involve taking this receptor, introducing it into maize or soybean, and then distributing that seed to farmers. And they could decide to treat with this chemical or not, depending on what they see as the water situation. Of course, that involves its own sets of regulatory processes and is in no way a trivial process, and there's, there's clearly a lot of resistance to genetically modified organisms at the moment. So it's not like it's ready for prime time next week. This is really just demonstrating that the idea works. And I think what's sort of interesting is that we've picked this one receptor that controls water use, but there's no reason you couldn't select any one of a number of receptors that control very interesting parts of plant physiology, like sensitivity to pathogens or growth rates. I think that it remains to be seen if this is going to translate from the lab to the real world. Sean Cutler there talking to Ewan Calloway. Coming up in the research highlights, an octo-robot and a study of baby chick numeracy. But first, the idea of plate tectonics is decades old, but we still don't know the basics. Where's the base of a plate? What does it look like at the bottom? How do plates move around? These aren't trivial questions to answer since the base of plates is at least 100 kilometres down. It's really hard to get good data that deep. But Tim Stern and his team, based in New Zealand and Japan, were not deterred. And here's another reason to really like this study. The methods section is just explosions. Here's Tim Stern with some background. Our knowledge about what happens at the base of the plates has been based in the past on earthquake waves, which have traversed from, say, one side of the Earth to the other and come up vertically. And as as these waves come up, they're modified by the various transition zones or layering. And in the last decade or so, these earthquake studies have shown that the transition zone is only a maybe only about 10 kilometres thick or so. And so this has come up with the idea that 
the, the boundaries beneath the plates are quite sharp. And so what we did, um, instead of looking at earthquake waves, we created our own waves by letting off very large dynamite shots and sent the waves down. And the advantage of that is that these uh, dynamite shots produce much higher frequency energy. There's almost a 10 times increase in the resolution. And what we see, in fact, we get reflections from this transition zone at the base of the plates with our uh, generated dynamite shots. And that means that the transition zone must be less than a kilometre or so, much, much sharper than previously thought. And before I ask you about the implications of that, uh, I just want to kind of ask you about the method here. I mean, it's, it's probably non-trivial to try and get permission to set off some pretty large explosions. How did you go about setting up the study? One advantage of uh, a very lightly populated country like New Zealand, which is only four million people and has the area of Great Britain, is that you can still do these surveys with dynamite shots. Uh, it's all permitted beforehand. Most of the shot holes are on farmer's land and we drill, drill the holes into uh, make 50 metre deep holes and they're all cased with steel. So when they go off, you can certainly hear it, but it doesn't produce any surface manifestation. We use half a tonne of dynamite at a time, or 500 kilograms. We had nearly 900 instruments across the lower North Island of New Zealand. Even very, very faint echoes or reflections from, from deep in the earth can be seen by the eye. Paint us a picture if you can then, given the data you've got back from this study and, and all of your instruments. If we went down to 100 kilometres below the surface where these plates are transitioning into the mantle, what would we see? Well, as, as you go down through the plate itself, it's surprisingly clear of structure. It's very, very um, strong-looking, old, what's called oceanic mantle. And then at this depth, what we see is a transition which occurs over less than a kilometre into a zone where the velocities drop by uh, around about 10%, uh, which doesn't sound a lot, but that's quite significant. We can relate that to either uh, a focus of melt or water. We're not sure which, but what we think is happening is that you are getting melt ponding at this depth, and then the movement of the plate itself then creates a focusing of this melt into an even more stringent, narrow focus zone. We sometimes use the analogy a bit like a, a ski on snow, when it starts to move it focuses a very thin layer of, uh, of melt along which the ski can, can move. Well, the plates seem to be doing that as well. We've got a layer about 10 kilometres thick at the base of the plates and we think this is where the, 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 um, the movement of the plate is focusing this, this melt. I suppose it's very difficult to predict how plates move, otherwise we would be a lot better at predicting things like earthquakes and, and volcanoes. But does this kind of data add anything to our picture of why these events happen and where they happen and even when? It will contribute to our general knowledge about how plate tectonics works and, uh, and exactly will give us a better understanding of, of uh, the forces involved. This in turn will just help build a, a picture of how uh, earthquakes along the plate boundaries of the Earth uh, are developed. What are you sizing up to explode next, Tim? Um, we've done quite a bit of this work in New Zealand. I must say this was totally serendipitous, this study. We set out to study the top of the plate under Wellington because under Wellington uh, the, the plate boundary seems to be locked and it's quite a seismic hazard for the capital city. So our next plan of what we might be looking at is trying to do a study at right angles to the present profile, see if we can get another profile to look at, at this boundary at uh, 100 kilometres depth. 
This study might uh, stimulate other people to try on other parts of the earth as well. I believe there's some work uh, now being um, carried out in the, in the middle of the oceans using very large air gun arrays on ships trying to get, get an image of the, of the plate boundary. But certainly working, working uh, from a land-based um, situation like we've been means you can use much larger shots. That was Tim Stern from Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. Steels are one of the most common construction materials around. They're usually made from a mix of iron and carbon, and often loads of other ingredients. It's used to make cars, buildings, planes, cookware, bicycles, robots, medical equipment, pipelines, door handles, washing machines, swords, bathtubs, fences, tankers, boats, lintels... Shh! The trouble is, if you make steel strong, it can be brittle. And if you make it nice and flexible, it's sometimes not very strong. The makeup of steel is often modified to change its properties. Material scientists around the world are always on the lookout for new and exciting tweaks. And this week in Nature, researchers from Pohang University of Science and Technology in South Korea have found a new one. Noah Baker got in touch with Ben Britton, a material scientist with a soft spot for metallurgy based at Imperial College London. Noah started by asking him how metallurgists make combination metals, a.k.a. alloys. So, so as a metallurgist, when we look at materials, we, we think ourselves as kind of like experienced cooks. So we take this idea of the periodic table where we have a wonderful range of different uh, elements that we can mix together in different proportions. By uh, adding extra alloying additions, so we take steel and we add uh, aluminium perhaps or carbon uh, in, in most steels, this enables us to improve the properties of those materials. And by alloying a material, we play with the chemistry as well as the heat treatments and processing conditions to generate our target uh, series of different properties, be they strength, be they fatigue life, uh, ductility, processing, and of course cost being very important uh, when we use these materials in real environments. And what's special about the steel presented in this new paper by Hansu Kim and his team? This is a very, very special steel in that the strength and ductility are fantastic. What is ductility? So if we take a, a, a few uh, materials around the home, if we look at a, a bathroom tile, as we break that material, it tends to break suddenly. It's very brittle. When we look at a spoon, for instance, we're very used to, to bending that spoon when we're bored, uh, perhaps uh, in a meeting, etc. And so the ductility is specifically that, that ability for us to deform a material such that it hasn't broken, but it's changed its shape permanently. And, and in this process of bending, this ductility, what, what's happening on an atomic scale in the steel? So the specific defect that we're interested for plasticity is called the dislocation. So the dislocation is an extended line defect in our material, and effectively this enables us to deform the object. So as we deform a material, we bend our spoon, the dislocations themselves, they move through the material. And as these dislocations progress through the material, they interact with various microstructural units. Now, as we tend to refine those microstructural units, we add lots of more barriers to those dislocations progressing through the material. And in particular, as we increase the number of barriers, we increase the strength, that resistance to further dislocation motion, akin to putting lots of bollards, perhaps, in our motorway, which slows down the traffic flow. As we inhibit those dislocations moving through the material, we make it stronger, but in, we also reduce the ductility of that system because we effectively have this traffic jam of dislocations that block and inhibit the progressive deformation and therefore restrict the total amount of ductility that is available. And in this new alloy created by the researchers in South Korea, what, um, what, what bollards are they using? 
so the key bit about this this story here is that we have our steel and we've introduced a series of hard intermetallic compounds. These are what we call B2 and they're, they're iron aluminium type brittle uh, bollards. So these bollards are really, really, then the dislocations really struggle to get through them. And so the progress of those dislocations effectively is limited and the material is significantly stronger. And the really special thing about this paper is that the precipitates those hard intermetallic particles are very finely dispersed at one length scale, and then they're also finely dispersed at a, at a slightly larger length scale and so forth. So we have a hierarchy of structure that enables us to have this very good strength as well as very good ductility. So here actually the morphology of the different precipitates has a significant impact on the performance. Now, that sounds simple. Uh, just throw some aluminium compounds into steel and there you go, new steel. Um, but I imagine it's a little more complicated than that. So the, the problem with this, this uh, approach to, to metallurgy, uh, generally speaking, is it's very much like cooking. There are good cooks and there are bad cooks. And it takes a very skilled cook to develop a multi-step process to generate a steel. So, so in this case, they have specific heat treatments where you have windows where the material does something quite particular and controls the precipitation of these hard B2 intermetallic compounds. Where could we use this material then? The real opportunity for this particular material is probably in the high value engineering commodities. This is looking at automotive cars and as well as in say aerospace applications. And the key property here is the specific strength of our material as well as the processing window that enables us to form complicated structures. And so in the competitors in this market are things like the titanium alloys used in aerospace as well as aluminium alloys that are used in cars. So when are we going to see cars made out of this material? So what's really nice about this paper is we're making 40 kilograms of the material. That's a fairly sizable amount of material. However, as we go to a foundry where we are making many tons, we have to think about scaling up and how we engineer the heat treatment processes at the larger scale. Yet clearly, that is what these authors have in mind, as this is a directly linking towards how can we make the chassis for a high-performance car, for instance. That was Ben Britton talking to Noah Baker, who is so keen he's opted to stay around and tell us more science stories from around the globe. Go, Noah! Scientists have taken inspiration from the deep to build an octopus-inspired robot. It's basically a sturdy balloon attached to a propeller, and it moves forward by filling its balloon body with water, then shooting it out. It's inspired by the escape manoeuvres of the octopus, its speed matches that of a fast squid. The team who built this say it could be useful for building speedy underwater vehicles. Alternatively, how fun would bath time be with an octo-robot? The paper is in Bioinspiration and Biomimetics. When asked to imagine numbers, most people imagine a number line stretching from the left to the right. But is this culture or inborn preference? To see what happens very early in life, researchers trained chicks that were just a few days old to recognise different amounts of dots on a little billboard in their enclosure. Say the billboard had five dots. Next, two billboards were placed, one left, one right, with two dots on each. Because two is less than five, the chicks would go to the left more often. When the number got higher, they preferred to go right. The team tried different amounts of dots and the trend still held. This preference could be due to brain asymmetry, as number crunching is concentrated in one hemisphere. 
Science has that paper. Finally this week, as always, it's news time and US news editor Matt Crenson joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Now we're going to talk about money. Uh, Every year, the US president gives a budget request, a kind of a wish list of money for different projects, different agencies, and the request for 2016 just came out. That's right. It came out on Monday the 2nd, uh, which is uh, the date set by law. And uh, overall, how does it look for science? Because this does provoke some uh, reaction from scientists every year when the budget is released. Well, I should start with the caveat that this budget is certainly not the budget for 2016. Um, Its chances of being enacted as written are zero. Uh, This is the first part in a process that starts with the president introducing his budget. Um, In a few months, the Republicans in Congress will put forth their budget, and then negotiations will go on. That said, Obama has asked for a healthy increase in spending across the board, and that includes science. But as you say, this is a bit like asking your parents for the Rosetta spacecraft for Christmas. It's very much like that. Congress gets to decide how much is spent, ultimately. And uh, sources in the article have said things like the budget is dead on arrival. So as you said, you know, it might be a bit optimistic. But if we put aside the fact that a watered down version is eventually going to be enacted, it does look better than this time last year, doesn't it? There was a picture of Obama running in nature that looked really sad. It's true. It does look better than last year. I think everyone wants to end uh, this status we're under right now called sequestration, which imposes automatic spending limits on all discretionary spending. So that's everything that isn't automatically mandated. Obama's uh, budget would do that. It would increase spending about 7% and for science by about 6%. And who within that stands to gain or is at least happier than they were this time last year in terms of the agencies and the the projects that have science at their heart? There's a lot of money for uh, research involving climate change and um, both uh, understanding climate change and um, perhaps mitigating it. Uh, And there's a lot of money also for the NIH. The NIH budget has been flat for about a decade in real terms, and Obama is proposing adding about a billion dollars to its budget, which would take it from just over 30 billion to just over 31 billion. So, and last week, of course, we talked about Obama's attempt to leave a climate legacy, so more money he's hoping will go towards uh, those efforts. The NIH, as you mentioned, the National Institutes of Health. Um, And who else gets a boost? The, uh, well, the U.S. Geological Survey gets a big boost, um, mostly as part of the, the climate uh, package. There's also quite a bit of funding for the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, which used to be the Standards Bureau. And a lot of that money is for uh, more applied research that boosts manufacturing capacity in the United States. Uh, within NASA, there's uh, extra money, again, for more Earth-observing uh, satellites and things like that. The, uh, the Landsat 9, the ninth generation in this uh, system of, of Earth-observing satellites. The money for uh, planetary science in NASA is, decreases a little bit by about 5%, and there's bound to be a fight between Obama and the Republicans over how to spend that money he favors this uh, asteroid capture mission that would go out and lasso an asteroid and bring it into orbit around the moon to study it, uh, which sounds a little out there. But um, they've been pushing it for a few years now, and uh, the Republicans are really interested in a mission to Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter that uh, has a liquid ocean underneath an ice 
cap and really if there's anywhere else in the solar system uh, that there might be life that would be a really good candidate so there's enthusiasm for sending a mission there yeah i mean and a, and a lot of enthusiasm among scientists for this six percent proposed budget increase for for science i mean but how likely is it really that that will be the the scale of the increase it's unlikely that it will be that much it um it generally gets negotiated down he'll have to uh, do some some trading. There's, in order to avoid sequestration, they're sort of playing a, a game. These spending cuts are across the board and they're evenly distributed between defense and non-defense spending. And the Republican Party is generally considered to be the uh, party that's more uh, interested in defense. So in order to avoid those cuts, they're liable to make some compromises in, in non-defense spending. And, and of course, in past years, they failed to get to, to an agreement. There was a, a government shutdown last year. So both parties have vowed that that's not going to happen again. Um, so it's unlikely. But um, if they can't reach an agreement in October, uh, the new fiscal year starts on October 1st, and um, they have to have a budget by then, or they have to pass what's called a continuing resolution, which just uh, keeps the same old budget that they had before. Matt, thanks very much for joining us and more on all of those stories at nature.com slash news. That's it. Thanks for listening to another Nature podcast. We'll be back next week to celebrate light. Oh, and uh, Charles Darwin's 206th birthday. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Carrie Smith. 